Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Dave. I'm one of your pastors. It is my true joy and privilege to share from God's Word today, John chapter 20. I'd encourage you to turn there. Bible that you brought with you, or there should be Bibles in front of you. Uh, Bible on your smartphone. Uh, John chapter 20, and anybody, was anybody here at the beginning of the series in the book of John? Behold, you were here, all right, many of us. We made it, right? Second to last. Um, and if you jumped into the middle, I'm sure that God has met you in different ways, and uh, I'm sure that there's ways that you can go back and, and catch up. But every piece of this has been exciting, even if this is your first time here, um, even though we're towards the end, God still has something for you. Um, when my kids were young, uh, Rebecca and I lived in Portland, and we were moving from a townhouse, and we rented this single-family house, and it was brand new, literally brand new house. Nobody had ever lived in it, and we didn't really understand Portland, and we didn't really understand the neighborhood, so once we moved in, our neighbor, we kind of got to know our neighbors, and they were telling us, hey, there's a lot of crime right now, actually, and uh, so you really got to kind of pay attention and keep your doors locked, that sort of stuff, and so I was kind of on guard right? You know, when you hear that sort of stuff, you're like, okay, I got, you know, I, I guess I better pay attention. And uh, we had a golden retriever. Uh, not exactly the watchdog type, right? <laughs> but I thought at least if someone's like breaking in the middle of the night, he's going to bark at it. It might even be a friendly bark, but at least we'll hear some sort of commotion. And so it wasn't very long after we, we moved in that I was woken up in the middle of the night with our dog ferociously barking. Not a pleasant bark. Angry, guarding the house bark. I'm running downstairs, and I hear what he's barking at, which is clearly a someone, not an animal, but someone outside near our front door or front window. And I realize in that moment that, you know, I don't know what's happening, but I'm the only one between my family and whoever's coming in. And so I started yelling, yelling and screaming through the, you know, let him know that someone's here. It might not have been the most pastoral things that I said. I'm not sure. Um, and I, you know, I'm still getting my head, you know, and I'm yelling and I'm telling him to call the cops and whatever else, I'm, you know, I'm screaming at him through the door. And then there's a little bit of a silence. And I hear, Dave? <laughs> and I peek out through the door and it's my brother-in-law. And I realize that they're expecting their third child. And we said, when the baby comes, bring the other two kids over. And so I swing open the door. Yeah, yeah, the baby's coming. I'm giving him a hug. And he gets the other kids. And my, my fear went to gladness in one point, you know, two seconds. Just like that. Because everything changed. Because of who was there. Because of what the situation was. And as we look at our passage today, the disciples are huddled in this room. They are afraid. Bible literally says they're there out of fear. They've got the doors locked. Jesus was just crucified. They've heard this report that he's risen, but they haven't seen him yet. They are afraid because they might be next. They're afraid of what, what they've believed in. They, they have all of these fears, all of this uncertainty. And then Jesus appears. And it turns to gladness. Just like that. Isn't that what we need some days? Spirit of gladness. Let's take a look. John chapter 20. Of course, we, we've been looking through the book of John, his public ministry, his private teaching to the disciples, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his appearance to Mary. That's what we looked at last week. And now we pick it up in verse 9. Same day. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear 
of the Jews. That's the Jewish leaders that had been instrumental in crucifying Jesus. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They were glad. So they went from fear to gladness. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There is so much going on in this passage. We won't have time to dig into all of it. It's worth your further study, but I want to make uh, some key observations. And if you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to write this down. The resurrection brings God's peace. The resurrection brings peace. God's peace, his shalom. Take a look at at verse 21. He announces it for the second time. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. He might have announced it the second time because they didn't hear him the first time because he just appeared in a locked room. Okay, we don't even have time to dig into all that, uh, you know, the resurrection body and and all all that's that's part of that. But, But he's announcing it again. There's this clear emphasis on Jesus proclaiming peace. Now this word peace in Hebrew is shalom, and we've talked about this from time to time, but it's more than just peace. In fact, it, it, it is more and less. It's, it's the simplest form. It's just a greeting. It's just hello. So in one way, Jesus is just like really playing it cool and just showing up and going, hey guys. But on the other end, there's this deep, profound meaning that the shalom of the garden that was broken by sin is now being proclaimed in the reign of the Messiah. Part of what John is drawing our attention to here is this new creation theme again. Um, some of you raised your hands and said you were here in the beginning. I'm not going to quiz you, but so just agree with me, right? We, we talked about how it was the new creation, right? The beginning of the book of John starts with a phrase, in the beginning. And we expect it to flow, in the beginning, God create, right? But he says, in the beginning was the Word. And he starts to explain how the Word took on flesh, and this is Jesus, and he's, he's dwelling among us. There's this clear kind of counting of the days at the beginning of John that kind of clues us in to this new creation theme. Look again at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the day of the resurrection, John points out the first day of the week. And then, so we don't miss it, he says Jesus said he gathered them together and breathed on them. Now, sometimes it's easy if we're just kind of reading the the New Testament without always looking and understanding the Old Testament, you get to that and you go, I don't know what this means. You know, do do, what we have to do in church, do people have to breathe on me? You know, know, what do they have, bad breath? You know, you, you could have all sorts of questions that flow from that. Understand the picture that John is painting is he's trying to take us right back to the garden. When God created and breathed the breath of life, And he's painting this very vivid picture. This is new life. This is the new life that John has been talking about all throughout his gospel. And Jesus is breathing new creation, new life into his followers, and he's sending them out to do the same. This is the new creation. And it flows into the, and and it's part of this idea of shalom. Now, I could go back to the Old Testament, and I could kind of quote you all this sort of stuff. 
Uh, but there's a great ministry called The Bible Project, and they make outstanding videos, and he does all of it in less than three minutes, and he talks really fast. So we're going to do that. Is that okay? Let's take a look at Bible Project's video on Shalom. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Erene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Erene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Dan, John is reporting for us that the Prince of Peace is announcing peace. And that this is a weighty announcement 
It goes back to the shalom that was destroyed in the garden, and it's looking forward to the perfect shalom that will come when the kingdom is fully here. And, and we talk about this, the kingdom is here already, but not yet fully. And this is the moment where it's being declared and proclaimed, the shalom is starting, it's starting in us, and it's going to have its way until it's perfect and complete. It's a beautiful picture of what the resurrection brings. The resurrection brings God's completed wholeness, His peace, His shalom in our lives. Resurrection brings God's peace. The resurrection brings God's presence. Brings His presence. Take a look at, at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Also look at verse 26. Eight days later, without getting into how Jewish day reckoning goes, this is the next Sunday, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. We'll look at the account of Thomas in just a second. But, but John is going out of his way to make sure that as the, the universal church, which is who he's writing his book to, that we understand the Sabbath is Saturday, right? That this is the new day of worship, that the disciples were gathered on that very first Resurrection Sunday, that they're meeting together, and when they met together, Jesus was present with them, right? In a very real way. Part of this is the unfolding of the revelation of the resurrection. But there is the presence of Jesus with them. By the way, if you'll note, Thomas wasn't there the first week. And just as a pastor, it kind of makes me feel better that even at the very first church service, somebody wasn't there, right? <laughs> like, you know, it's okay. You know, sometimes things happen. But it's like, so here, the, all the disciples are gathered, but Thomas is missing. But the point is that the resurrection brings the presence of Jesus. This is just a simple truth, because if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, we can't have his presence, Right? You can't have the presence of someone who is dead. If Jesus in, is in the grave, they can't have his presence. If Jesus is dead, we can't have his power. If Jesus is dead, we can't have his joy. If Jesus is dead, we don't receive the Spirit. If Jesus is dead, we might as well all go home because this is pointless. But Jesus is alive. And he's present to his disciples on that very first day. And he's present the next week. And each and every Sunday that believers in all sorts of nations and from all sorts of backgrounds gather around the world on the Lord's day, he is present. And his presence is here. When we gather in worship, we experience his presence. Now it's different, right? This is part of the revelation of the resurrection. But presence is important. I was just gone for several weeks, and as my kids get older, they're like, you know, less excited to see me. I might bring less candy. That might be part of the issue when I come back. I don't know. Um, but they're more like the teenage years. So any teenage parents, can I get an amen? Yeah. Um, but so I was kind of asking them, right? Um, hey, did, did, you, did you miss Dad? You know, and they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, what did you miss? And they're like, well, and they kind of all said the same thing in different ways. Well, we just missed you being here. And at first that was kind of disappointing, but then I realized they're just saying they missed my presence, right? When someone we love is separated from us, we miss their presence. When someone passes away, we'd give anything to have a moment of their presence again. There's power in the presence, and, and when we gather in Jesus is present, 
That's what the resurrection brings, a powerful and relational presence of God, right? Jesus was talking about the paraclete. He is the paraclete, which is this office of helper or advocate, one who comes alongside the presence of God, right? Jesus is sent literally to be the presence of God. And he says, I occupy this office of helper, but I'm going to go and there will be another. The Holy Spirit will come and occupy this office of helper. It's this presence, this God with us. God with with Joseph in, in Genesis. He's with him. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God with people. His presence is important and it's very tangible in why Jesus came. But Thomas didn't want to go through this transition. So there's a little bit of a transition going from the physical ministry of Jesus, right? And he's told his disciples he's going to die, be raised from the dead, and then ascend back to heaven in, in the Holy Spirit. And it's kind of this whole thing. And part of it is, you know, we all know the adjective that's used for Thomas, right? What, 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 we call him what Thomas? Doubting. Doubting Thomas. That's hard. Man, thousands of years later, he's, he's still not living past this, right? And, and I came knowing that I was going to preach this passage... You know, you're always supposed to come fresh, but you know, it's like, okay, I got the Doubting Thomas passage, and so I started working on this whole thing on doubt. God is big enough for your doubts, right? You know, you don't have to have it all figured out. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Like, and I was already, you know, and that's true. God is big enough for your doubts, but that's not what this passage is talking about. So as I read it, it's, it's, Thomas is in this transition, and he kind of, in some ways, in many ways, represents you and I. He is the very first person that the other apostles are sent to. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And Thomas wasn't there, and so the very, probably one of the very first people that received the testimony of the resurrection from the apostles is Thomas, another one of the disciples, and he rejects it. He rejects it. Take a look. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. This is the gospel. They preach the gospel to him. He's alive. And he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. As I know, never tell God never. Like it just like, just never say never to God. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. He instantly begins to worship, recognizes Jesus not just as Messiah, but as God, as the Son of God. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's this addition from experiencing God as direct eyewitnesses to receiving the witness of those. You and I believe because of the sure and clear witness of those disciples who became the apostles, the sent ones, and their eyewitness account and everything that John recorded in his book. And Thomas, even though he saw all those miracles, Jesus said, you should have believed just on that. And you should have believed because of the testimony of these men. 
And as soon as he experiences the presence of Jesus, he does. And there, there's kind of this transition from, from understanding kind of the physical sense of Jesus being here to the, to the way that he reveals himself now. And sometimes we get this wrong, right? Because all of this is wrapped up in us being sent. Um, Jesus said, I send you as the Father sent me, right? But sometimes what we do is we just jump to Bible and we hold it up and we go, you should believe right here. This is what it says. And sometimes we make these very clear arguments and we're like trying to be factual and logical and there's nothing wrong with facts and logic. That's important. And sometimes we're even making a political argument, right? Because, you know, you should believe in this side of the aisle or this side of the aisle because of what the Bible says here and we're very like, we're pointing to the Bible. And I just, just want to stop there and say, when Jesus sends us, he doesn't send us like that because that's not how he was sent. Jesus did not come and, and hold up the Old Testament law and say, guys, you need to get your act together. Jesus was the Word in the flesh. He embodied the Word. That's the whole point of the book of John. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as the Father sent Him embodying the Word of God, you and I are not just here to point to the Word. We are to become the Word. We are to become the manifestation of the kingdom of God. We are to become more and more like Jesus for a watching world that is waiting to experience His love and His hope. Because it is not just the truth of the gospel. It's the scars. Jesus believed when He experienced the scars, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the reality of His resurrection. And as we proclaim the gospel, this is not just live a good life and people will kind of figure out who God is. No. But it's not just quoting Bible verses on Facebook, right? It is being the Word incarnate, being a follower of Christ that is being transformed, that is experiencing new life, and proclaiming it with our words and our life and embodiment. We can't do it perfectly and we can't do it alone. That's why the Bible calls the church the body of Christ. That as we come together, we represent, we manifest His kingdom values, we manifest the Word of God and the love and the peace and the shalom and the promises and all that He has. The resurrection brings God's presence and part of that presence happens through us. Not just holding up the Bible and saying, look here, but being the Word and saying, look here, and pointing to the scars of Christ and saying, look there. Resurrection brings God's peace. It brings His presence. And hey, I, I, you know, if you're a good preacher and your first two points start with P, your last point has to start with P, right? The resurrection brings God's purpose, right? The resurrection brings God's purpose. Let's, let's, let's just look at this last section. But, but I want to say that sometimes the little headings in the Bible help us. They help us kind of make sense of the text. But sometimes they get in the way. And this is one of those examples because these two things flow together. And, I, and we've been quoting the purpose of the book of John, right? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We've been kind of pointing to this all throughout the book of John. But look, just let's back up a couple of verses and read it straight through. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. 
Jesus answered, said to him, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is an important kind of understanding that, that, that it's different. The sending of Jesus is slightly different than the sending of the apostles, and the sending of the apostles is slightly different than us being sent today. Right? That the apostles didn't operate in the same way as Jesus. They weren't called to die necessarily on the cross for the sins of the world, right? But then they were to bear witness about that. John has been repeatedly talking. How do we discern the truth? By witnesses. These are the witnesses. And there's the sending of us. We're not called to write the Scriptures, right? Because the, we weren't there. They are called, and, and all of our New Testament is based on the apostles' testimony. That's how we receive the faith. This is important. It's important that these uh, disciples turned apostles had all been with Jesus the whole time. It's important that Thomas received this revelation and this experience with, with Jesus as resurrected because he was one of the, the original twelve. When they replaced Judas, you see this in the book of Acts, they selected from a group of men who had been there from the beginning and had seen and bore witness to everything that Jesus had said, done, and taught, right? Including his crucifixion and his resurrection. We believe their witness and their testimony. We didn't see in that way, but we see in their testimony, in their witness, in their account in this book. Um, if you will, the experience that Mary had with Jesus is, is all about her experiencing the risen Christ physically, seeing him and hearing him and all that sort of stuff. There's part of the point of what's going on here in the account of Thomas is that he's experiencing him if you will, textually, like you and I do. And it's seeing, but in a different way. The account draws us into this belief. How do we believe? We see the cross and the resurrection in Scripture, and we see what happened, and we believe. I say that specifically, we see the scars. That's what the crucifixion is about in a personal way, is Jesus being wounded for our transgressions. Gars bring shalom. What it says in Isaiah 53, written almost a thousand years before he was born, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds... We're healed. It is his wounds, eviction, that point to what he went through for us, how he reveals himself to us as a wounded Savior. Savior with scars. Scars that bring shalom. I had the privilege this week of sitting down with a woman from Epicos, and she was gracious enough to share part of her story with me. And she explained how uh, early on in life she worked blackjack dealer in Reno. And it was a late night shift or a graveyard shift and, and this guy came in with thousands of dollars and played the whole table. All of the spots on the blackjack table all at once. Thousands of dollars 
out on the table. Lost almost all of it in just like a minute. He was so upset. And as she's going, collecting the money that he's lost because of his foolishness, his anger causes him to take his lit cigarette and jam it into her hand. And this is later, and she shows me the scar on her hand. And it's healed, but it's still there. Something about our scars, right? From, from our own sin, from the sin of others. Our wounds, maybe they're not healed, the scars yet. And I just want to point out that Jesus does not come, even though he's fresh off the victory over sin and death, he does not come in that. He comes revealing scars. Because he understands who we are, that we've been wounded, that we have scars, that we've been wounded by the curse and the marks of sin. And he meets us in that. And when we experience the presence of Jesus, it's his scars, the, the, the complete picture of his death and his resurrection, where he victory over sin and death. And he's proclaiming that to us in peace, revealing who he is by his is the gospel. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, made right with God, a right standing with God by faith, right? That's what John is saying. Believe. If you believe in Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection, you will be saved. You will have new life. You'll be part of this new creation. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have Shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the proclamation of the gospel that we can have peace, that we can be brought to wholeness in our relationship with God Himself. But I think sometimes fear gets in the way. Part of this word belief is, is the, the first time of belief and the ongoing of belief. It's hard to separate in our language, but it, it, in, in the way the word is there. It's not just believing for the first time, but it's continuing on in belief. And some of you are, are struggling with believing for the first time, and some of us are at a moment where we're struggling to believe God in, in a situation or a process. Revelation 3 kind of paints a picture of that, of Jesus standing at the door of our heart and knocking. Some of you, you're trying to decide, do I, uh, do I place my faith in Jesus? Or are you just trying to decide he, he's, he's trying to be more involved in your life, right? And maybe that feels uncomfortable. Do I let him in? And let me just ask, are you responding to Jesus at your door out of fear? Is your dog barking, so to speak? Are you yelling and screaming and threatening Jesus through your door? Because you're afraid? Afraid of what he's going to do? afraid of the way that he's going to have, that it's not going to line up with your way? Or are we opening the door with gladness, saying, God, have your way, embracing his presence, his truth in our lives? Trust him because he's alive and he's active in my life and your life and together. Let's pray. But I pray right now
for men and women who can hear my voice, who are, who are listening, who are watching, who are here, who are out in the hallway, whatever it is, God, that you would just give them the strength to surrender, to open the door to you, that you would come in and declare peace and wholeness. God, we can't bring wholeness ourselves, but you can. We can't have this kind of peace ourselves, but you can bring it. God, we pray that for our own hearts. We pray that for our families. We pray that for our church. We pray that for our city. And we pray that one day your kingdom will come and that your will will be done, that you'll cover the earth with your glory. God, we long and wait for that day of perfect shalom. And until then, have your, your new creation work in us and make us more and more like you, Jesus. We pray these things. Thank you.